You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. City of God, which came out in 2002 and was directed by Fernando Mereles and Katia Lund. Rio de Janeiro. The beach. The nightlife. The romance. But 15 miles from paradise <laughs> is a place called the City of God. A place where one man must infiltrate a war. Times proclaims irresistible, an exuberant chronicle of crime, a true masterpiece. City of God. It stars Alexander Rodriguez, Leandro Fermino, Seo Jorge, Matthias Nocturgale, Felipe Hackinson, and Alice Braga. The genre would be crime epic slash coming-of-age drama. 20 years ago, I can remember catching this at the Piper's Alley, movie theater, of course, on the north side of Chicago after work. It was getting some online buzz, but clearly not enough as the theater was mostly empty. Just me and a few other folks scattered about, seeing it by ourselves. And despite the small crowd, seeing this in a theater was a true communal experience. And I don't know who started the conversation, but a lot of us were just so excited by what we had just seen. Anyone nearby was probably overhearing stuff along the lines of, what was that? Holy shit, who directed this? My God, that was epic. I got to see that again. I could barely process it myself. And I remember thinking, wow, maybe this was what it was like first seeing The Godfather when it first came out. This film, City of God, was and remains that good. Two years later, through some weird rights and releasing confusion thanks to it being acquired and re-released by Miramax at the time, City of God would actually get some Oscar recognition, only to lose to Return of the King in all the major categories. Oh well, but it was still cool to see this film receive some plaudits. At its core, City of God is both a crime epic and a coming-of-age story. We're watching Rocket grow up amidst this extremely violent world, but mostly on the periphery. Most of his story is actually spent avoiding getting sucked into the violent drug trade all around him. He's not a Henry Hill nor Michael Corleone type who we watch lose his innocence as he becomes a major player within a criminal underworld. Nope. We watch him through a few early stages of his life as a young boy, then young man, with possibly just four things driving him throughout. Selling fish as a boy, getting laid and high as a teenager, and becoming a photographer as a man. And overall, just staying alive throughout. That's it. He's not remotely heroic nor noble, but you can tell that he's a well-meaning dude at his core, just born in the wrong place. One of the main sources of tension for this movie is just how close he needs to sometimes maneuver to this lion's cage world of danger without getting his arm ripped off. And that danger is often represented and or led by this story's most interesting and terrifying character, Little Dice, 
as a boy, he's known, who grows into Lil Zay as a young man. They sort of grew up together as the young Lil Dice used to run criminal scams with Rocket's older brother, before eventually murdering him. And their lives keep intersecting as they get older. And no, this does not become a revenge tale of Rocket trying to avenge the murder of his brother. Though at one brief point, that becomes Rocket's focus, just briefly. This desire to get revenge doesn't last long on Rocket's part, though, as he witnesses Lil Zay become the de facto crime lord of the eponymous City of God, basically taking over the city's drug trade. Rocket starts to find his passion with photography, and he just starts to view Lil Zay as an individual that he would prefer to avoid. Lil Zay builds a reputation as one of the most ruthless leaders around, and we see this firsthand with an early flashback of him, still as a little boy, as Lil Dice, barely seven or eight years old and brandishing a handgun for the first time, gleefully eager to use it like a brand new toy. And this leads to a brutal sequence where we watch this young child who is barely tall enough to reach the tops of the counters inside of a motel slash brothel. We still see him reaching over this counter and gunning down several strangers as he just laughs. It honestly looks like evil personified, but all the worse because this is really just the case of someone born into violence with no one around to steer him away. That night, Lil Dice satisfied his thirst to kill, though he knew Shaggy would never forgive him. To avoid being punished, he left the city of God. Their intersected stories genuinely start to pivot around the 40-minute mark, which is when, first watching this, it genuinely dawned on me that I was watching a special movie. The sequence is subtitled The Story of the Apartment, and I'll get to this a bit later. Another standout sequence comes later in the movie, as through montage, we watch breathlessly as a tribal war escalates between Lil Zay's gang and those who want to line up with a third key character who has recently been introduced, Knockout Ned. He's a well-meaning local bus driver and former military sharpshooter whose girlfriend and family suffers tragically at the hands of Lil Zay and his gang, and really for just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is all explained in a sequence that is, of course, called The Story of Knockout Ned. Now, Ned's not a gangster, not in the slightest, but he justifiably wants revenge and former rivals of Lil Zay aligned with Ned to capitalize on his newfound notoriety. He's now considered a local hero. Soon various others find excuses to pick one side or the other, and what results has to be one of the most succinct demonstrations for how any war, a small war, big war, it doesn't matter, can quickly escalate that I've ever seen. None of this would work, mind you, without a strong cast to pull it off. And they do in this case. Even though the majority of the cast were non-professional actors, who were just local to the area. This was the first time they were appearing on screen. Rocket, as a young man, is played by Alexander Rodriguez. And while he doesn't actually have much in the way of big acting moments, he gives a believable, natural performance. He provides a solid, relatable core for our story. And as we follow him, we realize just how much of his life just straddles a knife's edge between hope and despair at any given moment. And for a story filled with so much violence and danger... We also get to share a lot of joyous moments with Rocket, just trying to have fun as a kid or teenager, even though we're almost always aware of just how fleeting those moments can be. Leandro Firmino has the much showier role playing Lil Zay, providing a fierce presence as someone 
who's deeply insecure about everything except one aspect of his life which he happens to have excelled at from a young age, killing and or threatening to kill others. Obviously, we have seen violent hothead characters along these lines in movies like this before, going back decades. From Tommy and Goodfellas. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? (laughs) Tommy, no, you got it all wrong. Oh, oh, Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? Funny how? To Wayne Grow in Heat. To even Sonny in The Godfather. But honestly, not this well layered. As portrayed by Firmino, Lil Zay feels like one of those kids from season four of The Wire but with an even earlier head start towards being comfortable with violence. And then there's Seo Georget, who is genuinely effective as Knockout Ned, who probably has the most pronounced arc of any character in this story. And it's quite a wrenching arc at that, as we are watching a good person gradually lose his soul. Georget especially has some standout moments towards the end, as we watch his character, as we watch the wheels turning, watching him make small attempts at reclaiming his humanity, only to realize that it's too little, too late. He is now sucked into this world, and as one key portion of voiceover points out, the exception has become the rule. Speaking of which, Braulo Montavani's screenplay for this film is just brilliantly structured as the narrative is often folding back on itself in order to introduce and or reintroduce key characters, but never in a confusing manner. There's no shortage of clever dialogue, and everyone is written to be fully three-dimensional, even as we see some of them doing genuinely reprehensible things. And for a movie that runs 130 minutes, it not only moves, but is just packed with so many interesting side stories and characters. I have barely scratched the surface here. No joke. There's the Tender Trio, and there's Carrot, and the Runts Gang, and Benny the Playboy, and the supportive yet opportunistic reporters and photographers who rocket befriends at the local newspaper. So much richness in such a rich world, such a rich story. And that brings us to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. Amidst a sprawling, diverse soundtrack filled with loads of songs from various genres, including samba, Brazilian jazz, American funk, 70s R&B from both the U.S. and Brazil. The one song that always stood out to me plays just as the end credits are kicking in and we are shown several images of the real-life individuals that many of these characters in the movie were based upon. We even see a real news clip of the real Knockout Ned being questioned about the burgeoning gang war that he now finds himself embroiled in. The song is O Camino do Bem by Tim Maia, a Brazilian singer-songwriter who was often credited for introducing soul to the Brazilian music scene in the 1970s. But as music stretched across so many genres, including disco, jazz, rock and roll, and bossa nova, the song itself is pretty low-key, but quite catchy. It's got a mid-tempo with baritone vocals over funky electric guitar 
you could easily picture yourself just strutting confidently down the street while listening to it. I can't quite pinpoint when this song was actually released, except that it was likely first produced and performed by Tim Maya in the mid-70s. Tim himself actually passed away in 1998, four years before this film was released. But he apparently lived quite the crazy life and left an enduring musical legacy for the nation of Brazil. Check out some of his music catalog, his extensive music catalog, if you ever have the chance. Modesta e fecunda, amor de um doce paraíso, reino prepotencial racional, aonde brilha sempre o bem e não o mal. And that brings us to the next category, which would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Out of the mostly unknown cast for this film at the time of release, most of them did not develop well-known careers outside of Brazil. Except for one, Alice Braga. She plays Angelica, the object of Rocket's affection, who he tries very hard to romance through the first half of the movie. She has a few nice moments, even though she's not really given much dialogue. This would be Braga's on-screen debut, and since City of God she's actually carved out a pretty solid career as a character actress with good performances in several big films that I've actually quite enjoyed, including I Am Legend, Predators, the very underrated Repo Men, and the recent The Suicide Squad. Check out that review, by the way. I've always remembered her most, though, from Repo Men, where she has a nutso sequence late in the movie alongside Jude Law that is kind of gruesome and kind of sexy at the same time. Let's just say that it involves the reclaiming of previously purchased replacement body parts. Just wild stuff. And of course, it takes place in the future, mind you. Braga has carved out a nice career for herself since City of God, but could her talents have been better utilized for this movie? Sure. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. As mentioned previously, there is a scene around the 40-minute mark when we cut to an apartment where Teenage Rocket goes to buy some weed for him and his would-be girlfriend. The guy selling him drugs is the mild-mannered Blackie. And just as the scene starts to kick in, the voiceover starts to kick in, and a title appears on the screen. The story of the apartment. And what follows is a bravura sequence taking us through 10 years of events occurring within this very apartment, all shot from the same vantage point, and with this particular hub of the local drug trade periodically changing hands. Not only does the clever camera work and snappy editing just sell this as a standout sequence, but the mere idea of it is just beautifully executed. We are seeing a rapid-fire visual representation about how absolutely fleeting both power and loyalty can be in worlds like this one, as we watch middling drug dealer after middling drug dealer just get continuously outmaneuvered. 
It's presented to us as both brutal and comical. And it takes us right to the current situation where we see Rocket here to buy weed, just as we see Lil Zay and some of his gang come calling, literally about to make their move to take over this apartment. Just a truly impressive sequence. This brings us to the final category, the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. So much of what makes City of God work so well is done excitingly through high-energy montage. I cannot recall a recent film that made better use of montage as City of God, and much of the credit for this must go to the editor who did top-flight work, Daniel Resende. Resende deservedly received an Oscar nomination for his work that year, but undeservedly lost to the juggernaut that was Return of the King. And hey, I like that movie. Don't get me wrong. But let's be real here. When you think of great editing, you clearly think of the film with eight awkwardly stitched together endings, right? I have little doubt that overall, this film was a collaborative masterwork from the directors down to everyone else in the crew. But rewatching it recently, it feels like this film just reached another level in the editing bay. There are just so many smart editing choices made throughout this film, which allow us to bounce between different characters and or different stories without ever skipping a beat. One standout moment occurs near the beginning of the film as we are following a chicken running through an alley. It's being chased by Lil Zay's gang, who are shooting at it. And the chicken runs out into the middle of an empty street where we first meet Rocket. There standing innocently with his camera right next to the chicken. On one side of him, about 20 feet away, is the gang, Lil Zay's gang, all aiming their guns towards him, screaming for that chicken. Only to realize that on the other side of Rocket, about 20 feet away, are the local police who have just pulled up, several of whom are aiming their guns right past him. Yep, Rocket has found himself right in the middle of a massive standoff armed with only a camera and a chicken, I guess. And as he starts to tell us his story via narration, the camera then whips 360 degrees around him, center frame, as we transition to an image of Rocket, still center frame, but as a little boy standing in the middle of a soccer field, watching for a ball being kicked in his direction. And we are taken to the more innocent beginnings of this story. It is a brilliant transition and a dazzling way to introduce us into this world for doing such an exemplary job of editing together what, in my opinion, is the greatest film of the past 20-plus years, Daniel Resende is the MVP. My rating for City of God would be five stars out of five. Twenty years after first discovering City of God, I am still in awe of this movie for how much it accomplishes while being so entertaining along the way. It is a true treasure. And if you're looking to watch this treasure, it's currently streaming on HBO Max. And that ends another sprawling review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. 
and join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.